0: You know, before I jump into the sermon this morning, I want to spend a, a few moments for us to pray, lead us in some prayer for our country. If uh, you've been reading the news or looking at Facebook, you know there's a new administration that's come in and a lot of uh, difficult things that people are, are wrestling with and debating about some of the decisions that have been made. And I'm not here to take a stand on that other than to say uh, we need to pray for our leaders, we need to pray for our country, and so in the spirit of that I would like to do that and lead us in that for a few moments. So just join me as we uh, uh, pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we are thankful that you are king over all and that you are sovereign, and that as your people we can come to you with our concerns, with our fears, with our anxiety, and know that you hear us. Lord, uh, our our president needs your wisdom. Uh, we thank you that we have a president who wants our country to be safe. Uh, that is a good thing. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, as your people, we, we also... Uh, Read your word and and we see your heart uh, for people who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who are hurting, who are fearful, who are voiceless and powerless. And Lord, we know as your people, you call us uh, to act, to respond, to love. And so uh, we pray for our president to have wisdom in knowing how to balance the complexity of the issues that he has to face. Uh, We plead for your wisdom uh, to be a part of that decision-making process, and Lord, help us as your people to be people of firm conviction and and compassionate hearts and, and hearts who want to honor you first and foremost and want to respond in ways that give you glory. And so help us in that. Uh, Lord, even in this room as your people, there's differing opinions and, and, and uh, a lot of people feeling anger and, and fear. And, um, and Lord, we see that played out in the news and in these various ways. And so we, we just plead with you uh, to be in this, Lord, to, to show us what to do and what to say. And how how to love, Lord, in your name. We pray in the name of our sovereign King, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking in the book of Acts. Uh, We're continuing in this series. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, before we uh, read the passage this morning, I just want to ask you to join me uh, as we pray this prayer for illumination uh, would you pray with me if this is your heart? If you're here and you would like to see God speak to you, uh, join me. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. Amen. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking, uh, starting at verse 22 here in chapter 2. Would you stand with me as we look at this passage of God's Word? Starting in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken." And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, This piece of paper was Luther's attack on the abuses of the church in his day. And the very first thesis stated this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Do you agree with Luther? Is your life characterized by repentance. Perhaps repentance is a new concept for you because it isn't something talked about in our culture. And yet when we read scripture, we see that repentance is a core component of having a deep, thriving relationship with God. So if you notice that your relationship with God is dry and unsatisfying, perhaps it's because you're missing this key component. Almost 10 years ago, the radio personality Garrison Keeler was asked to choose what he considered to be the five most important books ever written. And some readers were probably surprised to find that he ranked the book of Acts number one. When describing the book, Keeler offered this concise but potent summation. The flames lit on their little heads, and bravely and dangerously went they onward. And onward they went and changed the world. And that episode is what Robin talked about two weeks ago in describing what happened when the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit who had been promised by Jesus. The apostles began speaking in these languages, languages of the nations. And the people watching were confused. They thought they were drunk. And so Peter gets up to try to explain to everyone what was happening. And this is the speech that we just read. The very first sermon of the church age. This is the first of 19 significant speeches in the book of Acts. There were eight given by Peter. There's one given by Stephen and James. And then nine by Paul throughout the book. And what stands out about this groundbreaking sermon that Peter gives here is how very Jesus-focused it is from beginning to end. We picked it up at verse 22, and there in verse 22, Peter introduces the life and ministry of Jesus. Verse 23, he goes on to talk about his death, his crucifixion. Then in verses 24 to 32, he goes on to speak of his resurrection from the dead. And then in 33 to 36, Peter talks about his exaltation that Jesus is even now reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And of course, Peter draws this all together to present the good news that is offered in verses 37-39, to the salvation that Jesus gives gives for us. And this sermon, this revolutionary sermon that Peter gave, changed everything. The church in this moment grew from 120 people to over 3,000. It's incredible. Now as a preacher, I I read this sermon and I'm thinking, how did he do it? What was the key here? And the answer is simple. It's, this is the story of the Holy Spirit at work. This is the Spirit of God moving in and among His people. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicted this group of Jews to repent and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And it's good for a preacher like me to be reminded of this. That it's God who saves, not the preacher, not a method, not a communication style. Peter didn't save those 3,000 people. The Holy Spirit did. In that, mo- in that moment, the Holy Spirit is the one who changed their hearts and their minds and transformed them into a new community. But how do we know it was the Holy Spirit? What are the characteristic marks of the Spirit here in this story? Where are the fingerprints of the Spirit? Well, verse 36, I think, gives us the clue that we're looking for. In it, we're told that the people in the crowd were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. I love that phrase. It's been staying with me for two weeks now. The Greek word used here uh, describes this cutting as a piercing of the heart. A piercing that leads a person to experience acute distress. These people are troubled. These these people are, are concerned. They're regretful. They're remorseful. They've been shaken to the core of their very being. This isn't some interesting information they've been presented. This is something that has rocked them. It wasn't simply intellectual, it was felt in their hearts. And so, how does the Spirit do that? How did it pierce them and cut them like a physician with a scalpel might slice a person open? The Spirit, what what scalpel did the Spirit use here? It appears that the Spirit used Peter's words. It used Peter's profession of who Jesus is. The crowd was confronted with truth, the truth of God's word. They were confronted with reality. Their eyes were opened to truth in a new way, in a way that they had not seen before. Last week I read some stories from a website of people who were describing the moment they realized they were an alcoholic? The site was full of stories explaining how they were jolted out of the haze of their existence. You see, they had lived all this time thinking they were fine, that they didn't have a problem. And then one man named Chris shared a story that his moment came when he woke up after passing out from drinking Jagermeister all morning. Before a graduation party for his best friend's little sister, he had passed out by 11 a.m. After he woke up, he knew he had a problem. And one woman shared her moment came when she started rotate, uh, rotating what stores she went to for beer so that people wouldn't think she had a problem. She said, As soon as you start hiding and being sneaky about things from strangers, no less, you have a problem. See, these are examples of people who who had uh, a, a real issue, but they were unaware of it. They didn't see it until the switch flipped. And suddenly they could see it. The reality of who they were suddenly became clear. They'd been living for years, not seeing it. And in that moment, it all changed. Now all of us have this reality deficit. All of us have this condition. It's part of being sinful human beings. None of us see reality as it really is. Studies have shown this time and time again that we exaggerate our own positive characteristics and abilities. Some British researchers years ago did a study. They surveyed 85 convicts who were part of a prison in Southeast England. And not only did these convicts rate themselves more moral, self-controlled, trustworthy, and honest than the average prisoner. They also rated themselves better than the average member of the outside community. And this reality deficit, it's true for alcoholics and it's true for convicts. And my friend, it's true of you and it's true of me. Now, if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, I would argue that this reality deficit is what's keeping you from embracing Jesus. You aren't seeing the reality of who He is. You aren't willing to admit your true condition before God. You're still living with the delusion that you're basically a good person, and that's all that really matters. Try your best, be sincere, and God's good with you. Well, my friends, you need to hear these words of Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer who said this, before a man comes to Christ, he must come to himself. I'll say it this way, before a woman comes to Christ, she must come to herself. You have a culture trying to convince you to trust your own heart, to listen to the voice within you, That that's where salvation lies, when you are true to yourself, to look within, to believe. But study after study shows us we can't trust ourselves. We have a reality deficit. Our hearts aren't reliable. And in Acts chapter 2, we see people wake up from their delusion. The delusion that they were telling themselves. Peter is preaching to a crowd of Jews who believed Jesus was a fraud. He was a fake Messiah. He was crucified and publicly shamed. He was hung naked on a tree like a common criminal. And within their limited view, it appeared that Jesus got what he deserved. But along comes Peter with the Holy Spirit at work. And through his words... Their whole understanding of reality changed as they began to see Jesus for who He really is. that Jesus wasn't a common criminal, that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the hero that the Jewish people had longed for for hundreds of years, that death really wasn't the end for Jesus, that death was the confirmation, that death wasn't the confirmation that Jesus was a fraud. In fact, his defeat of death was confirmation that he was, indeed Messiah. And that Jesus was raised from the dead and was even now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And Peter says, he wraps it up in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter convinced them, the Holy Spirit convinced them. They'd been blind to reality that Jesus wasn't this common criminal, that he wasn't just simply a good moral rabbi. Peter audaciously proclaimed Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Messiah. And when he did this, the Holy Spirit took that truth and he made it real and clear and vivid in the minds and hearts of the people listening. They saw it. And they were cut to the heart. Conviction it can show itself in huge transformative ways that can change you how you see reality. But conviction and can also help us see reality in more subtle ways. We begin to see ourselves in more complex ways. The psychiatrist M. Scott Peck gives an illustration of this, and the insight and understanding of himself. In his reflections uh, when meeting a a high school classmate at the age of 15, Peck writes this, says after meeting his friend, he reflected, said suddenly I realized that for the entire 10 minute period from when I had first seen my acquaintance until that very moment, I had been totally self-preoccupied. For the two or three minutes before we met, all I was thinking about was the clever things I might say that would impress him. And during our five minutes together, I was listening to what he had to say, only so that I might turn it into a clever rejoinder. I watched him only so that I might see what effect my remarks were having upon him. And for the two or three minutes after we separated, my sole thought was of those things that (coughs) I could have said that might have impressed him even more. I had not cared a whit for my classmate. What insight! Here's a man who saw reality of who he was. You can see there's, there's, some, there's some sense of conviction here in his reflection, a type of, convi- of conviction. But what I'm suggesting with the Holy Spirit, it's more than, than, than simply seeing it. It's, it's more than seeing the reality. It, it's what it does to you. It's it how it affects and impacts you. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Notice in our story what this leads these people to do in verse 37. When they heard Peter's words, they were cut to the heart. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Can you hear the desperation? Can you hear their pleading? Can you hear them say, "Uh, we're scared now. We see reality. We see reality. Where we were wrong, what do we do in light of this? And I wonder how often do you have that type of urgency? How often do you experience such conviction? When you're confronted with reality in the depth of who you really are, how often do you ask that question, what am I to do? I'm lost here. In verse 38, Peter points them in the right direction. Peter guides them and he says, Repent. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. And when the Spirit of God pierces us, it not only convicts us, (coughs) it not only shows us Shows us reality, it shows us Jesus. The, the Spirit shows us Jesus. Now this is a key point we need to understand about repentance. So often we believe the lie that we need to clean ourselves up before coming to God. You know, Some of you see the reality of who you are. You know you're messed up. But you're, lo- you're lost in this delusion that, well, I'm just going to get it together and I'm going to start going to church more often and I'm going to straighten up my life. And then maybe, just maybe, you know, I'll be at a place where I can really devote myself to God. But I'm just not at that place now. I'm not ready for that yet. But that isn't the gospel. The gospel is you cannot clean yourself up, you cannot attain a certain status as a Christian to become at a certain place where you are worthy to, to repent, for God to receive you. Jesus said he came for the sick. What does it mean to be sick? It means you're not healthy. And Jesus, as the great physician, does not expect you to get healthy before you come to him. He wants you to come Now. You see, this is the tricky thing about repentance. Even the act of repentance can turn into an act of self-righteousness. We can think, well, I need to repent (coughs) so that God will will receive me. Repentance becomes a hoop to jump through. But that isn't the Spirit of God. We also get caught in another type of false repentance. We're sorry because we got caught Or we're sorry because we're experiencing the consequences of our actions. That isn't repentance either. I think that's what happens so often for a lot of us when we experience the consequences of our sin. We feel bad because we got caught, not for who we've offended. You see, we can become sorry because we've broken the rules. And we think to ourselves, well, good people don't break rules. And really our repentance is a sign that we believe ourselves to be a good person and and we know that good people don't do those types of things. And so our repentance is more of not living up to our own standard. You see, none of those things are of the Spirit. None of those things are what the Holy Spirit does when He convicts and brings us to repentance. The Spirit convicts not because we've broken God's rules. The Spirit convicts because we've broken God's heart. This is the key of repentance that comes from the Spirit. We're convicted because of what it says about how we view God. That's when the Spirit is working, that's His fingerprints. Because sin is relational in nature, sin is a sign that you want something other than God Himself, that He isn't good enough for you. That's why sin is so offensive. And so repentance flows out of this desire to be restored to God. It's it's an admission of what you've done to Him. It's personal. That's why it's so troubling. That's why it it must be heartfelt. That's why it breaks you. And that's why repentance is not a resolution against sin. You know how often you fall into a sin and you say, man, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be a better person. Or it's not fear of the punishment. No, no, it's about wanting to be restored with your father. Wanting to know him, wanting to come to him, and and knowing he receives you in Christ and that there is forgiveness. And it's offered for you. I love Thomas Watson. He says, it's one thing to confess sin. It's another thing to feel sin. And I think that's a missing component for many of us in this room when it comes to our sin. Our sin. We know it, We know we're sinning. We just we're not feeling it. That's why we're not repenting. It's not leading us to the Father who loves us. This hit me hard um, this past week. this This idea of conviction and repentance um, in 2016, Olivia and I hardest year in our marriage, without a doubt. And um, you know, without getting into all the details of the complexity of our relationship. Um, I realized last week one, one of the main issues that, have block, that has been blocking me from, from restoring, having reconciliation with Olivia in, in, a, in a deep, intimate way has been my inability to be her advocate in how we discipline our children. You see, um, Olivia, if you know her, she's a little more fiery in me and her personality, which I love about her, um, and, and that fiery nature can sometimes come out with the kids, you know, kids do that to us, and you know, sometimes I, I might do things differently than her in how to discipline our kids, and, and part of the frustration that's happened in our relationship is that the, the, she's wanting to be on the same page, and I'm just wanting her to do things my way. And I've been refusing to kind of stand with her and join her in unity to discipline our kids in, in a way that's healthy. And, and God finally showed me that last week. It, it, was, like, it was like a switch that fl- flipped for me. She was sharing and trying to explain it to me. And, and for months she's been trying to do this, and I haven't seen it. And if something happened. I think it was the Spirit of God showed me my sin. Show me my unwillingness to admit that I really wanted to do it my way. And I was unwilling to come with her as her advocate and work on it together. And, and so repentance for me it has, has involved f- feeling that conviction, feeling the offense that I have, have done against my wife, and coming with her, confessing that with her, and then working towards changing that. And it's also involved understanding my offense towards God. Because the reality is, I was unwilling to admit this, to say, you know, God, in this way, I'm not a very good husband. And I haven't been a very good father. And what I realized is that status of being a good husband, a good father... I was latching on to that desperately for my identity. It was blocking me from repenting and feeling conviction that the Holy Spirit had been prodding me with for so long. You know, It, it reminds me of this story that Ken Sandy uh, tells, and I'll end with this that he was running one morning and he saw a, a, a woman who's visually impaired uh, walking her, her seeing eye dog a golden, beautiful golden retriever. And as he was passing them on the other side of the street, he saw the, the woman walking with the dog, and, and there was a car. You know how a car sometimes is parked in the driveway and it blocks the, the sidewalk? And as the, the woman was walking the dog, the dog, of course, came up to the car and stopped. And Kent, Sandy was watching them, and he must have guessed that they'd walked this path all the time. And the dog at this moment was going to try to walk around. Well, the woman, you know, she's thinking, well, we walk this all the time. We don't turn here. And so the woman kind of refused to move to the side. Instead, she gave the signal to the dog to move ahead. And the dog lovingly just kind of leaned up against her leg to get her to move. And she refused. She refused to do it. And she angrily ordered the dog forward. Once again, he declined. And he just tried to prod her the other way. And, and she got so mad, she kicked the dog. And, and she walked forward and ran into the car. And, and when I read this story, I, I couldn't help but see that dog is like the Holy Spirit in our lives. That dog um, is like how the Spirit prods us and the Spirit... Uh, is seeking to protect us from making this, these stupid choices and impulsive decisions in our lives where we, we try to go our own way and we f- refuse to listen to the Spirit. And then we do something like we walk forward and we run into the car and, and we experience the consequences of our sin. But the beautiful thing about this story, how, how it ended, is when that lady walked into that car, you know what she did? She fell on her dog sobbing. She, she, she's just saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> and that, that's a beautiful picture of repentance. And the restoration that God is offering us in Christ Jesus. And I know some of you here this morning, you, you're in a very tender place right now when you think about this topic. Because you've been afraid to let the Spirit lead you. You've been afraid to really deal with your sin. and You've been afraid to follow His prompting. And today is the day for you to wake up. For you to see reality. To see who you are. To confess that to God. To receive the forgiveness He offers you. And to walk in the newness of life that He gives. And so I'm going to ask Mark to come up. He's going to lead us in a song as we prepare ourselves for communion. Because in communion is Jesus calling us to come and feast and dine with him and receive that message of grace and forgiveness that he offers. And so let's spend a few moments here singing together as God's family as we prepare to take the supper.